Well, amen and amen. What a beautiful, beautiful thing to see these families uh, with their children, promising to raise them, uh, teaching them the gospel, introducing them to Jesus Christ. That is a, a beautiful thing. We are going to be in the Gospel of Mark today. We are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark about the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you have been with us for the past two years almost, that's where we've been. We've been in the Gospel of Mark looking at this book, and uh, you know it's, it's been a, quite a journey. Uh, we've we've take, taken some sidetracks here and there, done some other series along the way, but for the good part of two years, we have been in the Gospel of Mark looking at the person and the work of Jesus the Son. And if you were here with us when we kicked this series off, one of the main themes that we talked about uh, in the Gospel of Mark is that Mark is writing to a Gentile audience who, in many of their minds, would have this question. Why would I follow this itinerant Jewish rabbi from Judea when Caesar's over here in his palace, when Caesar can call armies to himself and have them go out and conquer nations? He's declared himself as God. Why would I follow after this Jesus? And so one of Mark's purposes in writing this gospel is to show Jesus for who He is, the man of power. And as we're getting to Mark chapter 13, that is good background to understanding some of the things we're going to be reading about today in Mark chapter 13, that Mark is proclaiming who Christ is, the man of power, the man who's really behind all of the things that go on on this earth. That's Mark's purpose in the gospel, and that is Mark's purpose as he writes us these words, as he records these words of Jesus uh, in today's teaching. Now, we are in the midst of Mark chapter 13, which uh, is a chapter where Jesus does two things. One, He proclaims publicly the destruction of the temple. He's walking out of the temple, and as He's walking out of the temple, one of His disciples approaches Him and says to Him, hey, look at all these amazing buildings. Look at these these incredible structures. And Jesus turns to this disciple and says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so we see that Mark chapter 13 has two parts in it. The first is this public declaration of Jesus that the temple is about to be destroyed. And then the second is a private discussion that he has with four disciples who come to see him. Uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to see him privately, and they have this question. They have this pressing question that is pressing down on them where they ask Jesus, what, what is this going to look like? Tell us, what are the signs when these things are about to be accomplished? When is this going to take place? Jesus' dramatic declaration that the temple is going to be destroyed would have shocked anybody at the time. And as a matter of fact, two weeks ago, if you were here with us, we looked at that declaration and how that actually leads to Jesus' death just in the next chapter, that Jesus is brought to trial before the Jewish council, and they begin bringing witnesses in who are testifying about Jesus, about how He has declared that the temple is going to be destroyed, and that is the main testimony given against Jesus. And so finally, the chief priest turns to Jesus and says, well, what do you make of this? What's all this testimony about you? And Jesus, in this not-so-veiled way, affirms everything that's been said and says, yes, the temple will be destroyed. I am God. You will see me judging you, and 
The glory is not going to be in this temple. The glory of God is going to be on me. And the, the high priest tears his clothes and declares him a, a heretic, a blasphemer, and he's sent off to be crucified by the Romans. So it's this public declaration that we see in the first two verses of this chapter that informs everything that Jesus is about to talk to His disciples about, everything that He is about to teach them. They're concerned about when is this going to happen, and so Jesus answers their question. Now, last week, uh, when uh, Casey was, was preaching on the abomination of desolation, he did an awesome job of describing the kind of literature that Jesus uses here, the kind of language that Jesus uses here to teach His disciples. It's, it's, it's apocalyptic language that He's using here. And He gave some, some key features of apocalyptic language that I think are important for yes, last week and for this week, and so I want to go over them again. One is that apocalyptic language contains historical significance. It is, it is a type, a way of speaking where you're drawing from history to kind of inform what's going to happen in the future. So it it's draws from this historical well of knowledge. So it, when we're trying to interpret it, what's very important that we try to do as we try to interpret these passages is that we have to know the history of the Scriptures. We have to know what's come before. We have to learn to read all of Scriptures so we can understand what it is that Jesus is drawing from so we can interpret what He's saying here accurately. Another key element of it is that it's, uh, this is a big word, eschatological in nature. And eschatology, or the eschaton, refers to last things, to last things. And so what we are talking about here in the last things is not necessarily the end of the world, okay? We're not necessarily talking about the end of the world, and that's important here. But what we are talking about is the end of something very important. We are talking about the ending of something. All right. Third, it's pessimistic in nature. And of course, we're going to see that very clearly as we go through these texts, that Jesus is giving this very pessimistic, dark view of what is about to happen. It's pessimistic in nature. And then finally, there are these three things that I've kind of grouped together. One there, it's, it involves kind of visions. There's almost like a dreamlike quality to some of the things that He says. It involves visions, symbols. It's highly symbolic. And the symbols are used as a kind of insider language so that some people will understand and some people will miss the point. And so as we come to this, we want to make sure we get the point, that we understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. So as we do this, let's, let's review really quickly some of the symbols that we've already seen. So as these four disciples come to Jesus, as they approach Him on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus begins to teach them on the Mount of Olives, and they ask Him, what are going to be these signs? What's going to be the, the things that are going to warn us that this temple is about to be destroyed? <clears throat> he starts giving them symbols, and He starts talking about things of wars, rumors of wars, of persecutions that they're going to face, that they're going to be turned over to councils, and, and they're going to be before trial, have trials, and they're going to be called to bear witness for Him, that they're going to be betrayed by brothers and sisters and, and friends. And He describes it this way. He says, all these things are birth pangs. They're birth pangs, okay? They're the, they're the groanings of, of labor. And what does that bring to mind? That there's this pregnancy that's going on, and that something is about to come of it. Something new is about to be born. 
something new is coming, and that this turmoil that they are about to face is the labor for something new that is about to take place. And then last week, as Casey talked about, we, we read of the abomination of desolation that Jesus says. So when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, when you see this abomination of desolation, then beware that there's something significant that's about to happen. And of course, as Casey talked about last week, that abomination of desolation is an Old Testament reference to Daniel 11, who looks forward from his time to see this event that happens prior to Jesus when the Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who is the ruler over Judea, sets up the image of Zeus in the temple, defiles the temple by putting the image of Zeus in there and having sacrifices made to Zeus instead of to God. And of course, in that period, the, the Jews revolted and they overthrew Antiochus and they threw him out. And, and uh, there's a, a great story there about uh, how the Jews persevered over this, this foreign aggressor and uh, retook and reinstituted worship to God in the temple. But Jesus is calling us, that's that historical language. If you don't understand that history, you have a hard time understanding what Jesus is talking about. And so what Jesus is, is pulling that forward now and saying is that there's about to be another desolation of the temple, just like there was 168, 190 years ago. Okay. So he's calling that forward. And he says, when you see this desolation of the temple, when you see this desecration take place, boy, you better flee to the mountains. You know, he, he, he calls this uh, attention to how difficult it'll be for those who are pregnant or nursing infants. He claims that it's going to be the potentially the worst, it will be the worst tribulation that has ever occurred on the planet. There will be suffering untold. And one of the things he calls out is that there will be these false prophets all over the place, false Christ, people saying, I'm the Messiah. He's not saying that these are people that are going to say, I'm Jesus Christ. These aren't people who are going to be saying, look, I've come back, I'm Jesus. These are people who are going to be saying, I'm the one who God foretold of long ago. I am the Messiah. I'm going to lead the Jewish people onto prominence in the world. I'm going to overthrow the Romans. Follow me. That there's going to be people who are going to be claiming that they are the ones that they should be followed, not, not Jesus Christ. So the picture painted by these signs and symbols is very bleak. It's very pessimistic. It's soberingly, shockingly bleak. What Jesus is doing here as He's talking to His disciples is He's being a good pastor. He's being a good pastor to them. And here's why. He knows what they're about to face. He knows what they're about to experience in their own life. And He is preparing them for that reality and offering them encouragement about how they should respond in that reality. That's Jesus' purpose in this entire chapter, is to encourage His apostles, His disciples, His future apostles about what they are going to face. And so, as we understand that, I think it's important to understand what the disciples faced, what the apostles faced in their lifetime. Uh, of course, shortly after this passage, Jesus is put on trial. He is put to death. He dies. And then the resurrection happens. And for a period of about 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus is with them. 
And again, that 40 days is a period of strengthening for the apostles for about what they're about to face. All right, so there's this short period of 40 days where Jesus returns after His resurrection and the disciples are strengthened, they get to spend time with Him, be taught by Him, and they're encouraged for the time to come. Because immediately after Jesus ascends back into heaven, persecution faces and dodges, dogs the church at every single step. The first persecution is from 30 A.D. to 64 A.D., right after Jesus' death and resurrection. For about 30 years, a great Jewish persecution comes upon the church. The Jews or the Christians, these new Christians, are, are hunted down and stoned wherever they're found. They're imprisoned. They're kicked out of temples. They're kicked out of the synagogues. They're not allowed to worship with the, the real Jews, with the people who aren't heretics. We even see uh, Christians killed, and one of the, the main characters in this early Jewish persecution is the, is the character Saul of Tarsus, who finds himself capturing Christians, committing them to prison, probably to death, is there at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, consenting to his death until finally he sees the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and becomes a Christian himself. And then his life is filled with this persecution. He goes from place to place. He gets stoned. He uh, is imprisoned all over the place. Half of his letters that he writes to the church are from prison. He faces this persecution himself. In during this period, you'll notice one of the things that Paul does is he actually appeals to the Roman government for help. When he is caught and he's in trouble and he's imprisoned, he'll often appeal to the Roman governor as a Roman citizen. He was a Roman citizen to, to help him in this period of time. And there was this, during this first 30 years of persecution, the Romans were actually helping the Christians. But uh, that ended in 64 AD. In 64 AD, the Roman emperor Nero was ruling, and a great fire breaks out in Rome, and he blames Christians for it. To escape the political liability himself, he has to find a scapegoat, so he blames Christians. And one of the most intense persecutions ever to uh, come against the church happens at that time. As a matter of fact, it's so intense that Christians are captured throughout the empire, they're, they're killed, they're martyred because they refuse to say that Caesar, Nero, is God instead of Jesus is God. They're sent to the uh, Colosseum where they're attacked by wild beasts for the entertainment of the crowds. They're used as human torches to light the ways in the city. As a matter of fact, Nero himself earns the, the nickname, the beast, because he'll often have Christians tied up at parties that he'll throw for his friends where he will have them attacked by beasts as they're for the entertainment of his friends. The persecution is so bad that both Peter and Paul are killed in this persecution in about 66 AD. Paul is reported to have been killed just outside of Rome after he's tried as a Christian. And Peter, who uh, it's also said was crucified in Rome by Nero. And so this intense persecution breaks out against the church. In 66 AD, uh, just to give you a, a more of a feel for what the apostles would have experienced, what, the, uh, uh, what these men who are talking to Jesus would have experienced, in 66 AD, the Roman governor in Judea 
raids the temple and he steals all the temple treasures out of the temple. And this causes an uprising in Judea. The great Jewish revolt happens and they kick out the Romans. They kick out the Romans in this massive uprising. And Nero dispatches two men, Vespasian, the general, and his son Titus, to quell this revolt amongst the Jewish people. And during the early parts of this conquest, this reconquest of Judea, Vespasian captures a young man, a young general by the name of Josephus, and he uses Josephus to write a detailed account of the reconquest of Judea. And Josephus writes of just the utter destruction that the Romans bring to the Jews, capturing city after city, butchering thousands, crucifying many more who they capture as a as a sign of what happens to those who rise up against Rome. And Jerusalem, which is on the brink of being reconquered and destroyed in 68 AD, receives a short reprieve because at the same time that this uprising has happened in Judea, Nero goes absolutely insane because of a comet that he sees in the sky, which he assumes must be a sign from heaven that he's about to die, that he's about to be... Um, lose his throne, and so he commits suicide. And for a period of two years, civil war erupts in, in Rome. And the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that had kind of ruled that entire area for several, you know, hundred years at this point or seven, you know, uh, breaks up. And all of a sudden, there's a period of about two years where there are four emperors. First, there's Galba, who, whose reign lasts seven months before he's assassinated by his own men. Then there's the Emperor Otho who commits suicide after three months. Then there's Vitellius who reigns eight months until he's eventually defeated and assassinated by Vespasian who has returned from Judea. He stopped his reconquest of Judea, returned and has defeats Vitellius and becomes the final emperor here in this period of about two years where there's just turmoil all throughout the Roman Empire. Um, but that short civil war in Rome, which, again, if you're experiencing this as a person living it, you must have felt like the world was ending with all this turmoil, like the world was coming to an end. But that short turmoil in Rome saves Jerusalem for two years until Vespasian comes back and continues his conquest of Judea. He sends his son Titus to finish the job. Now, instead of using this two years to prepare for the onslaught that's coming from the Romans, during this two-year period, the Jews are fighting amongst themselves. And there are mainly two parties who are doing this. The zealots are fighting against the party of the priests. The, the, the high priest has his own group, and they are at odds with the zealots, who are these, this group who wants to fully and finally uh, throw off the shackles of Rome and, 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 and start their conquest of the world, which they think uh, God has, has given them uh, cause to, to believe that they can conquer the world. And so during this two years, the zealots actually conquer Jerusalem from the high priest, uh, from his party, and as they are fighting in the city, the high priest is murdered, and the zealots shed blood on the temple mount, which most people, even at the time, considered that to be the great desecration that was coming is the shedding of blood in the temp- on the Temple Mount. And so the, the zealots do this, and in the fighting, right before the Romans show up again, 
somehow all of the grain in Jerusalem, all the storehouses of grain in Jerusalem, and there was six years' worth of grain, are burned up in the fighting. And so when the Romans finally show up, Jerusalem is horribly prepared for a siege. And a famine immediately ensues when the Romans surround the city. And Josephus writes of just the the terrible suffering of the people as not only are they beset by war, by invaders who are trying to take the city, but the the city literally starves to death. The city literally starves to death. As Jesus talks about the, the, the absolute turmoil of this period of time, of how terrible it would be for women who are nursing or who are pregnant, Josephus, and I'll spare you the the gruesome details, but he talks of cannibalism that becomes common within the city, of these gangs that would go from house to house and beat and and kill and murder in order to take food, and of the emaciated state of the defenders who are trying to fight off the Roman attackers, how they are just so emaciated that when they are actually captured and they're given food, they they have so, they're so um, uh, decrepit that they die from eating the food. That's how terrible it is. The Romans slowly conquer the city. They they conquer the outer wall. Then they conquer the the inner wall of the city until finally all of the defenders are huddled up upon the Temple Mount. They're huddled on the Temple Mount as the last line of defense. This great build. Remember these at the beginning, Jesus proclaimed that his disciple comes to him and says, Look at these great buildings. Look at these amazing buildings. Everybody's huddled into these great buildings now as the last line of defense against the Romans. And then this false, Josephus writes of this false prophet that appears, and the false prophet begins promising the people that God is just about to deliver us, giving them false hope. And that false hope prevents most of the people from surrendering. Titus offers them to surrender, and he will be merciful. He won't kill most of them, and he... He promises this, this great uh, uh, mercy if they just surrender, but this false prophet prevents most of them from surrendering. And so they, shortly thereafter, the Romans take the, the Temple Mount. This great slaughter ensues. The Romans bring in their standards to the temple, their, their images of the emperor who they consider to be their god. The temple is fully and finally defiled, and then the Romans burn it all to the ground burn it all to the ground, and tear stone from stone. All that history is important for this reason. That is what the apostles actually faced. That's what they actually faced. You know, we here in Houston have faced our own difficulties, you know, this year as a city with the flooding. As terrible as that was, as disassociating as that was, as much as that threw us off our game, as much suffering as we saw in this city, I don't know if we can even imagine the type of suffering that was going on in these events. It's impossible to really grasp that. But that is what the apostles would face. And all of the apostles, all of those disciples, each one of these men, Peter, James, and Andrew, All of them died during this great turmoil. The only one who survived was John. John is the only one to live past the time of the temple's destruction. So Jesus knew they were going to be facing this. 
He knew they were going to be facing this darkness. And so he's being pastoral to them. He's saying, I want to encourage you because I know what you will see. And so he's teaching them to persevere. This last statement that we read last week was Jesus telling his disciples, be on your guard. I've told you these things beforehand, that you're going to face this. So here's the question. Why this tribulation? Why this evil? Why does God use this darkness like this that we see in these events? How does He use that? Why? I think the next few passages, the passages we're going to read through clearly today, give us a hint as to how God uses darkness like this for His purposes. You see, the main point is this. God uses the darkness of evil so that we can see the light and the goodness of Jesus Christ. That's God's use for evil. This is a backdrop to the light. You know, if I wanted to paint a picture of a lighthouse, I could paint a picture of it on a bright and sunny day. And you can probably find many pictures of beautiful lighthouses on a bright and sunny day. But if I wanted to show you the purpose of a lighthouse, I'd paint a picture of it against the darkest night. Against a dark and stormy night with the light shining out, warning the ships of the rocks ahead. When God wants to show the light, when He wants to show His goodness, it is often against the backdrop of the darkest night. And we see here in the judgment upon Jerusalem that what the promise is, is the light is coming, is that we will see the light. Let's look at verses 24 through 25 in verse chapter 13. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. See, here literally someone turns off the lights. The sun and the moon and the stars, somebody literally turns off the lights. And as we think of these astronomical signs, on a first impression, what most people kind of look at when they see these things is they see, well, we must be thinking of eclipses, you know, maybe something happening to the moon, maybe a comet. I remember in the late 90s, one of my favorite movies was the movie Armageddon. How many people you know, saw that in the late 90s? Where the main theme is this comet is coming towards earth. And Ben Affleck and, and Bruce Willis have to save us all. You know? I mean, what a, what a promo for the oil industry that is. It takes oil drillers to, to outdo NASA scientists to make sure they can save us all with a nuclear bomb and blow up the comet because that's how we're going to be saved from Armageddon. I mean, that's the kind of imagery people kind of default on and think on when they see these verses, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, This is one of those areas where we have to learn to read the Bible and use its symbols and understand its symbols. You see, this is the insider language that we were talking about, the insider language. Uh, If you recall back to the Old Testament, let me just give you one example. One example here from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, do you remember the the person of Joseph? Joseph and his coat of many colors? Remember that guy? You remember one of the reasons why his brothers were so jealous at him was because his father gave him that coat. But that wasn't the only reason. 
Joseph came to his brothers one morning and his father and his mother and said, hey, I had a dream last night. I had a dream last night, and in that dream, I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars, and they all bowed down to me. Now, who is the sun and the moon and the 11 stars? His brothers knew right away. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars were Jacob, his mother, the moon, and his 11 brothers. Now, Joseph and his 11 brothers would go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? The symbolism there is that the sun and the moon and the stars, the things that light the world, are Jacob and his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And what Jesus is doing here is He is pulling from this Old Testament symbolism here to say something about what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. It's going to be darkened. To give another example from the New Testament, to see how the New Testament also interprets these signs, we can go to Revelation chapter 12. And here here it is. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that before? This woman who is about to give birth, clothed in the sun, with the moon under her feet, with a crown of 12 stars, is about to give birth to something new. And what does she give birth to? She gave birth to, the male, to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So this woman gives birth to a child, and this child clearly is Jesus, who's caught up to God, who's ascended to the Father. And the woman, almost universally, is interpreted as being Israel. Sun, moon, stars, gives birth to the Messiah, the King of Kings. That's Israel. And so what Jesus is saying here, if we are, if we are clear enough to understand the symbols that He's using, is that the sun and the moon and the stars, the way that God has normally lighted the world through all of history, the way He has done this through history by using the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, as the light of the world, that's going to end. They're going to be darkened. The lights are about to go out. Why? Why is the light about to go out? Well, we read that in verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Because Jesus is appearing. You know that point when you go see a play? You go to see a play, and before the play, before the performance, everybody's kind of milling about the auditorium, and the lights are up. The lights are up. But what happens when the show's about to begin? The lights go down, and all the attention is focused on one place. And that's what's happening here. The lights are about to go out so that Jesus can be seen for who He is. We get back to this, if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about the clouds of heaven, what that represents. 
how it represents the glory of God. Back in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, as Solomon is consecrating the temple, the cloud of God's glory enters the sanctuary. The cloud of God's glory comes to the temple where God's presence is going to be with His people. And we talked two weeks ago about how Jesus says to Himself, I'm going to have the clouds of God's glory. They're going to be on me. And so that's partly what he's talking about here. But he's also talking about another significant prophecy from the Old Testament, the prophecy that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, one of the, the things that's happening is Daniel sees a prophecy of four beasts. And the four beasts represent four kingdoms, Babylon, um, Persia, uh, the, the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, and then a Roman empire that's going to come that's going to be more powerful than even all of those. And after that period of time, after those four kingdoms, all of those nations are judged. And there's this heavenly courtroom scene. And after those nations are judged, Daniel sees this vision in Daniel 7 verse 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So all these other kingdoms that came before, they're judged. Here comes one like the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. His nation will never be destroyed. That's what Jesus is referring to here, that He will be seen to have received dominion over the whole world. Everybody will see Him. All the other lights will go out. But Jesus will be seen for who He is, as the one who has dominion over everything. It's against this black backdrop, these evil events that take place, this great turmoil that takes place, that Christ is shown as the one who has dominion over the whole world. When all these things are fulfilled, just like Jesus prophesied, everyone will know that Jesus is exactly who He said He would be. Do you see Mark's purpose? Why should I follow this rabbi and not Caesar? Because when Jesus' prophecy are fulfilled, you'll see who He is. You'll know Him as the man of power. And you will worship Him. And then in verse 27, we, we see the consequence of this. What's going to happen after Jesus is made clear? After Jesus' kingship and His power and His lordship is made manifest, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to send out His angels. And then He will send out His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You see, once Christ has been revealed as being the one who has dominion over the whole world, He brings in His elect. 
He sends His messengers to declare that message to the world. And His people, His elect, hear His voice, and they come and worship Him. Angels, that, that term angels is the Greek word egalos. It means primarily messengers. I know we like to think of these heavenly beings. I don't think he's referring to heavenly beings here. He's referring, unless he's referring to the saints as heavenly beings. But he's referring to us. What Jesus is referring to here is a process that has been ongoing for more than two, almost 2,000 years. That Christianity has become a worldwide religion, a worldwide faith where we recognize the kingship of Christ and where we worship Him. It has been the advance of the kingdom of God throughout the world. Around the world right now, there's an estimated 2.4 billion Christians. Why? Because messengers have gone out proclaiming the message of the kingdom of Christ to every nation around the world. It's after 70 AD that Christianity truly became a worldwide religion. In the matter of a couple hundred years, Christianity went from a small sect within a small area of Judea to a religion that began to dominate the world, especially the Roman world. Within a couple hundred years, it was a persecuted religion to a religion that was the, the uh, official religion of the Roman Empire. And we can all argue over whether that was even a good thing, but what it shows is the proliferation of God's kingdom throughout the whole world in a short period of time because of Christ's dominion, because of the advancement of His kingdom. And that mission and that growth continues even to this day. The reason why you sit here is because of Christ's dominion. Because somewhere along the lines, a messenger came to you and told you of Christ's kingship, and that He's the Lord and the God that you should worship. That's why you're here today. That's why we are here today, to worship the King, because we've heard the message. That's why this church cares so much about missions. You know, there are more Christians today than at any point in human history. And I know we can look at the world and say, oh, how terrible it is. And it is. There's still evil out there. There's lots of it. There's lots of evil out there. And we're going to talk in a minute about how to deal with that. But there are more Christians today than there ever have been in human history. Why? Because the message of God's kingdom still goes forth. That's why this church cares about church planting in Kenya through Feed Teach Hope. Or even down the street in College Station, in Bryan, or in San Marcos. That's why we promote organizations like Compassion that go into third world countries and that take care of kids in the hopes of bringing them the gospel and expanding the kingdom of God, bringing them the message of the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's why we have two missionaries here who are preparing to go to China and who our church is supporting. You know, China is going to be, by many accounts, the largest Christian nation in the world, if not already, within the next decade. The kingdom of Christ continues to expand into the world, and that is something to be encouraged about as we see that happening. So let's finish up here in this, these last few verses here. 
from the fig tree learn its lessons. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. So here Jesus is telling His disciples here, when you see these things, it's almost time. I've given you the signs. When you see them, it's like the ripe fig tree. You know that the time is near. And who is at the gates? I'm at the gates. I'm at the gates. It's really important to understand what Jesus is saying here. I think it's, I think it's crucial that we get this. Well, the gates He's talking about are the gates of Jerusalem. The gates He's talking about are the gates of Jerusalem. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And what He is saying here is that when you see these signs, know that I have come in judgment. I know it's going to be the Roman armies that are surrounding Jerusalem, but know that I have come in judgment. You see, we're going to talk about how this relates to us in a minute, but we cannot miss the fact that Jesus, apart from being our Redeemer, is also the judge of the world. In Revelation chapter 19, in one of my favorite verses in Scripture, in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is revealed from heaven. The Apostle John, who would have witnessed all of this, writes this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, He judges and He makes war. This Jesus comes in judgment. It's been given to Him to judge the world. And when He says to His disciples, it's going to be me at the gates, He tells them, don't make a mistake. I have come in judgment. I know it maybe looked like the Romans, but it's me. I'm behind all of it. I have been given dominion. And then he says this, and this is how we know that Jesus is not talking about some future far-off date, something in the far distant future to us, but he's talking about something very near to these disciples' times. He says this, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. A generation in Jewish mind is four years, 40 years. So Jesus is saying, He's guaranteeing it, and He guarantees it in the very next verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is guaranteeing that in 40 years, you're going to see who I am. And He's talking to His disciples who are going to go through this incredible turmoil, and probably specifically talking to John, who in his mind is going to wonder, what in the world is happening here? But John is... He's telling John, all of these things will happen and you will see who I am and it will happen before this generation has passed away. And it does happen in 70 AD. What Jesus is promising here, and I think it's an important promise to understand, is that His words, His promises are more real than the ground beneath your feet. They're more stable than the seat you're sitting on. They're more real than the world around you. Do not neglect them. So here's how we apply this to us. Here's how we 
because Jesus' statements are not to us. They are encouragement to His disciples. But how do we take them? How do we understand them? How do we understand how God uses these terrible events for His good purposes? And what I think we have to understand is we have to understand, we have to have a, a great definition of goodness. And here it is, very simple. God is good. God is good. And evil is the absence of God's perfect goodness. Evil is the absence of God's perfect goodness. When you suffer evil, it is a taste of hell. It is a taste of what it would look like without God, of what this existence would be without God. It's a taste of hell. God uses evil in these two ways. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell it out for you this way. God uses evil in one of two ways, either as judgment on the unbeliever, and I'll, and I'll explain how He does that in a minute, or correction and revelation to the believer. Correction and revelation to the believer. You see, judgment on the unbeliever happens like this, because we experience evil when God removes good that He has already given by His grace. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think how this would work. God has given you everything that you have. He's given you everything that you have. I was talking to my daughter the other day, and we were talking about the consequences of sin. And, uh, uh, you know, we were talking, there's a very difficult thing that we have to raise with our children, isn't it? That sin brings death. Sin brings death. And why does sin bring death? It's because when we are judged by God to be below His standard, be, to have sinned, God is totally just to take every good thing that He's already given away from us. And I was talking to my daughter about that, and I was like, can you imagine that? I mean, think of all the good things that God has given to you. Think of all of them. What would it be like if God were to take all those away? And she thought about it, and she said, <laughs> her, her, her comment on it was like, wow, man, if He took away everything, I'd just be sitting outside on the pavement, on the concrete. <laughs> And I thought, close, except there wouldn't be any concrete. There wouldn't be any you. If God took every good thing away from you, you'd have nothing. You'd be nothing. Evil is the removement of the grace of God that He has already given to us. We see that all over this passage today. Jerusalem, which had been given so many blessings by God, the Israelites who had been given so many blessings, had, had so much that God had given to them, including their great city, their wonderful temple, safety and security, and all of a sudden, God begins to remove all of those things from them, and they're gone. No more security, no more power, no more safety, no more health no more life. You know, the last thing that they have to hold on to at some level as they're all clustered there on the Temple Mount is hope. But it's a false hope because it's from a false prophet. And then finally, that hope is taken from them. Ultimate judgment is the removal of all of God's blessings. One day, if you don't meet Christ as Redeemer, you'll meet Him as judge. 
You'll meet him as the judge who will take away everything. I hope you never meet that Christ. In Job chapter 1, verses 21, Job rightly says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, I came with nothing, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And He is saying that at that moment, sitting in complete squalor after losing everything. It would be totally just for God to take everything away from us. And that's what He does when He judges. He just removes His grace. He removes Himself. He removes His goodness. That's one purpose that God uses evil for. The next purpose He uses His evil for, not His evil, He uses evil for, is for correction and revelation to the believer. You see, here's the important point about today. The apostles experienced everything that the Jews experienced in the destruction of Jerusalem. (laughs) Did you get that? The apostles experienced all of the same suffering, all of the same problems that the Jews did in the destruction of Israel. They experienced the same hardship, the same struggle, the same persecution, and in all their cases, except for John, they experienced the same death, a horrible death. But what is the difference? What is the difference? In their suffering, they saw Christ. They retained their hope to the end. They could lose security, they could lose health, they could lose power, safety, even life. They could have the same taste of hell that everybody else does that suffers evil in this life, but they could never lose God, the promises of Christ. They could never lose hope. And here's the effect of that. Paul talks about the effect of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-12. through 12. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You see, what the apostle knows is that he can go through the same suffering as anybody else, but he knows he has hope. It's not to death. And his hope is, his desire is, that in his suffering you'll see Christ in the way He responds to it. That you will see His hope. That He would be reminded that His only hope is in Christ. That's the response of the Christian. What I hope for you is that you never lose hope. My prayer for you is that you never lose hope, no matter what life throws at you. You lose a job, do not lose hope. You lose a house in a flood, do not lose hope. Christ was your only hope. You get that diagnosis of a sickness. Do not lose hope. Christ is your only hope. 
marriage is falling apart? An affair in your marriage that's destroying your family? Don't lose hope. Christ was always your only hope. Lose a child, don't lose hope. I mean, if there's anything that shows the goodness of God, it's our children, you know, as a parent. What a great gift. Such a great gift that when it's taken away, we almost don't want to live anymore having tasted something so good. But we can't lose hope because we still have the giver. We still have the giver of that good gift and so many more that we've been promised. We don't lose hope. Persecution, wars, no matter how bleak the backdrop of this world, we don't lose hope. Never lose hope. My prayer for you is that in the darkness, you'll long for Christ. You'll long for the light. You'll give thanks for your promised salvation. Proclaim the gospel in the midst of darkness. See, the main difference between the people of God in this world and the world is this, the ability to endure the darkness and proclaim the light. We don't deny evil. We acknowledge it as a taste of hell that it is. And we point people towards the light, towards heaven. As you leave here today, I want you to think, how will you respond to evil? How will you respond to it? Will it crush you? Or will it make you long for Christ and grateful for the hope that you have in Him? Let's pray.